Radio Drone. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct, five seconds. The pain begins. And your flesh. And your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding. The terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. <laughs> One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Snurf. Their thoughts can kill. Alex, did you just fucking scan me? You still have a head on your shoulder, so obviously I didn't. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the Scanners movies. And Brad's not going to be in tonight's episode because, and I'm quoting here, I ain't got time to watch all five of them things! So, in Brad's place, we got the Projection Booth's Mike White. Hello! Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME to get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, Free U.S. shipping and a free mystery gift, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. The Scanners movies, everyone knows the first film. And we'll, we'll get into each individual film, but I think, Mike, you summed it up perfectly when I asked you to do this retrospective, one of the problems with the Scanners movies. I believe your quote was, how many of those are there again? Yeah, I didn't realize that there were five films. I remember the first one of course and actually it took me a long time before i finally sat down and watched it i had seen so many clips from it in uh terror in the aisles throughout the years yeah finally caught it just a couple of years ago remembered two and maybe three from my days of working at the movie theater because they actually showed one of those theatrically i had no idea scanner cop what the hell is that it, it's a spin-off slash sequel I'm not sure. Alex, did you re remember that there were five of these, or were you kind of surprised, too? Because the most common answer I get is, there's five? I remember there being sequels, because it was always on the stands at the video store. But I didn't know that there was that many. I knew that there was at least two or three. The thing is, all five movies are produced by Pierre David. Now, the problem with this is... The movies make no sense as a series. We're going to we're going to be charting the timeline as we go through each film to point out just how ridiculous the timeline is. And since Pierre David produced all five and even directed the last two, I think we can squarely lay all the blame for this on his feet. He any blame would be his. He he had scanners in his heart. Really didn't try to pay attention to the timeline because after a while my head just started to really kind of hurt watching these movies so let's start with i think this was meant to come out in 1980 but the first film being released by by mgm in 1981 scanners by david cronenberg i really liked this film i thought it was a solid little thriller it was very inventive the the plot boiled down is 
there's a race of people that can read your mind, and Michael Ironside is an evil member of this, and there are only 236 known scanners in the world, and the prisoner himself created them, and it's all vying for control of the world, and that's really boiling it down. What did you think of the first film, Mike? I really liked it. I, Like I said, I had seen clips before. Of course, I had seen the exploding head scene and saw the opening part of it before. But yeah, it was really, it, it reminded me of a few other films, but for me, it was much better done. It reminded me a lot of uh, films that were coming out around that time, like Firestarter, The Fury, and Dreamscape, kind of playing on this like MK Ultra kind of uh, feel, feel going on. But yeah, just the low budget kind of, worked in this film's favor and it just was such a nice tight storyline and then the acting i mean ironside was just incredible in it and this is relatively early in ironside's career so i was a little disappointed he didn't do his ha yeah and i like that he had the uh the scar going on the self-trepanation kind of thing just added like a nice little creepy creepy thing to his already kind of creepy face in it I really did like the first film. In fact, I thought it was some of Cronenberg's best of his early work. A lot of body horror in that movie, especially in the climax. And Michael Ironside's... Michael Ironside, sorry. Singular. He does a yeah, great job. Yeah, he's not the detective. He does a great job as the villain. And the the thing that that I think is the biggest problem with the first film is our hero. Cameron Vale, played by Stephen Lack. He was just meh as an actor. He was lacking? Yes, he was. But apparently Cronenberg liked him because he also used him as a lead in Dead Ringers. On the other hand, you've got Patrick McGowan, you've got Jennifer O'Neill alongside Michael Ironside. For whatever reason, he never worked with any of them again. Michael Ironside, supposedly, he gave an interview where he said he got along along with Cronenberg just fine, but Cronenberg is on record saying that Jennifer O'Neill and Patrick McGowan were absolute nightmares to work with. Well, I know McGowan definitely was a very strong, he had his opinions, let's say. I mean, he had been, you know, doing the TV game and then doing directing of himself and others for years and years, so... It doesn't really surprise me if he would rub people the wrong way. I know once he got along with people, he seemed to kind of go back to them again and again. I'm a big fan of Columbo, and he would always kind of show up on there, either as the director or as one of Columbo's nemesises or nemesi. But yeah, I can see him being a little bit of a, a handful. And as far as the actress, I'm not really sure. She her role kind of always takes me by surprise because it's like she shows up and then she kind of goes away and then she comes back again. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I remember this lady. She she comes from working with Lucio Fulci, so you would think Fulci is admitted he does not like women and he treats them poorly. You'd think if Cronenberg treated her decent, she'd stop being a bitch to him, but apparently that's not how this worked out. Well, Cronenberg being Canadian, I'm sure he was just very polite to her. I don't really have thoughts on them because I'm not too familiar with those people outside of scanners yeah mcgoon was on the prisoner but that's about all i know about him i have to ask each of you guys i didn't see all the production problems but listening to an interview with pierre david and hearing cronenberg tell it this film was shot it was a surprise that the film turned out remotely coherent they got their production budget two months 
before shooting began, which meant they had almost no time to cast the film to find locations. Cronenberg said at one point that they didn't even have locations. He would say, okay, this is what we're planning to shoot today. Three hours before they were going to shoot, he'd send out some people to try and find a place to shoot the, the scene in. Can you tell that the film was that kind of slapped together? It doesn't have that feel to me. I mean, there's definitely a very episodic feel to it as far as like this bit of the film is, you know, when they're in this warehouse and this bit of the film takes place over here. So I guess I can kind of see where you're coming from with that, but it didn't really feel like it was slapped together. It it definitely felt like there was a good idea of going from point A to point B and he seemed to pull it off. I mean, like I said, it felt low budget in some respects, but then in the look of it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it really feels like he's kind of coming into his own. I mean, looking at some of Cronenberg's earlier stuff, this one seems to be a lot more polished for me. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Mike. It does not look slapped together like it was all done on the fly. I mean, each scene does have its own unique look and feel that contribute to the whole look of the film. That it looks, from my point of view, when I watched it, not knowing any of the background information, it looked like this was his intent the whole time. And I think that's the sign of a really good director, that he knew what he wanted and he knew where he was going with this, even if the producers didn't, that he knew what was happening here. And then we also have to point out there's definitely deleted scenes out there that nobody has seen, because in the final battle between Revok and Vale, there is a shot that was in Fangoria and even on the back of the box for the original Embassy Home Video release of this for the VHS of Vale's head catching fire with sparks shooting out of it. That is nowhere in the film. I mean, that happens all the time as far as production photos being used for publicity when they're not actually in the film or you know, being even part of the preview and it not being out there. I'm thinking that really if we saw Vale's head catching fire and all this kind of stuff, then that little twist at the end would not be as effective as it is. So I, I think, you know, it definitely helps have that little bit of suspense as far as, you know, did he make it? Did he not make it? Taking that specific shot out of the movie does help the twist at the end a lot. And yeah, it's not the first time that they take special effect shots that aren't in the movie and use them to promote it. And then now we have to say that this film definitely takes place in 1980, as we're going to start with the timeline discrepancies. So this is 1980. That's established by both when it came out, some of the references, the record store. Remember when they crashed through the record store? There's not a single band post-1980 on that. And when Revoc is signing that release form, when Vale sneaks into the company, you can see it's dated with an 8-0 at the end. So, Not to mention the reel-to-reel computers. The reel-to-reel computers. So let's say... No way that this is not 1980, agreed? All right, I concede. All right, so then we move on to Scanners 2, The New Order. In 1991, they they waited 11, well, 10 years from release. So 10 years to make a sequel. I think everybody knows that Cronenberg is not big on sequels. He doesn't like sequels, so I think it's no surprise that he didn't want to be involved in, in this. But Pierre David took the idea and made a sequel. Here's the thing. They never tell us when Scanners 2 The New Order takes place, but it has to take place in at least 2010 to 2015. And 
they do a slightly decent job of making it seem a little futuristic. There's neon everywhere, and, you know, it, it, it looks vaguely what 1991 thought f- the future might look like. The plot is basically Vale and Oberst, the two survivors of the first film, went on the run after the first movie, had two children, which are our two leads in Scanners to the New Order as a corrupt policeman is trying to use scanners, including evil scanners, to take over the world. There's more to it, but, Mike, that sums it up, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, you're talking about this kind of futuristic thing, and definitely they're going... For me, it felt like they were going for, like, a Blade Runner kind of thing, especially, like, the opening with the mannequins, and you've got the fan going around and the light behind the fan, and then even some of the... the um, soundtrack kind of sounded I saw a jealous. I saw a definite Tony Scott vibe in those earlier scenes. It reminded me a lot of Tony Scott, honestly. Yeah, it, it wasn't quite up to the Ridley par, so it was on the, the Tony tip. To me, one of the, this is where the timeline becomes solidified. So, okay, it stars the children of the two main characters from the first film. Now, assuming they had these children right after the first film, let's say in 1980, then their oldest daughter, the actress, was 38 when she made this. So let's let's give a little bit of leeway that she wasn't quite playing a 38-year-old at this point. The other character, David Hewitt, who, by the way, I didn't even re- recognize as Rodney McKay from the Stargate TV series. He's that bland and unrecognizable in this. But he is about to graduate from veterinary school, which is approximately an eight-year course. So assuming he started that right away, we're a right around 2010, agreed? Again, I concede your point, Josh. Okay, am, am I nitpicking that, that too much with all the little details I used to draw on for that? Setting it at 2010 specifically might be. I said I, at I least was just 2010. Going, I was just safe with something after 2000. Okay, now <laughs> keep this in mind, listeners. This will come back into play later. So I thought this film was okay. I liked the idea that they can control scanners now, although the drug that they use, F2, is highly addictive, almost to the point of crack, and it also burns your body out. So once you've been injected with it once, you've got about a year before you basically melt. Our new lead villain, Drac, come on, if your last name is Drac, you're born to be a villain. That's just, There's just no way around that. There's a difference. David Hewitt looks like he doesn't want to be in this film, and he's totally, totally bland. Drac looks like he's in a totally different film, and he's Jeremy Ironsing up the entire proceedings. He does. Drac is totally in a different movie. What was his name? Trujillo? I didn't really like Scanners 2. I thought it was really dull. It had a lot of potential. Like, you have this new order that maybe there's going to be some dystopian element to it that it never panned out. You never actually see what this quote-unquote new order is our villain's goal is just to be a mayor like that's aiming for the stars there so i (laughs) (laughs) maybe he was being realistic i really couldn't get into it at all and yeah there were the timeline issues which not really much of a problem in getting into the story of the movie at this point they're not much of a problem but they will be later yeah but david hewitt was rather lacking. I did like Raul Trujillo's performance being so over the top. He was in a B-movie. Everyone else was playing way too seriously. Yeah, he was taking this seriously. And I want to point out David Hewitt. The reason they said they cast him, and again, I'm laying the blame on Pierre David's feet, he made the first movie too, so he should have known this. 
the plot twist at the end of the first film is that Cameron's body is completely destroyed, but his mind is put into Revok's body, Michael Ironside. You so, forgot to preface that with spoiler alert. That's against the law, Josh. them. So, they said they cast David Hewitt because he had a passing resemblance to Stephen Lack. And there's and it's his Stephen Lack's character is his father. But since Cameron was put into Michael Ironside's body, then shouldn't they have hired an actor that looked like Michael Ironside? Or did they forget their own plot twist at the end of the first film? Was Cameron Vale and Daryl Revok were they supposed to be related? They were brothers. Okay, so I can kind of see why, you know, the the DNA would be, you know, kind of similar between those two. But Stephen Lack and Michael Ironside don't look anything alike, man. No, they don't, but, but you know. You've got recessive genes and yeah. dominant genes. I just thought that it, it just kind of went to the laziness that we forgot that Michael Ironside's body is the one that survived. Yeah, well, it sounds kind of like a, almost like a press puff kind of thing where it's like oh and we cast david Hewitt because he had a resemblance to our first main character yeah just something that some hack made up well what were your thoughts then mike on scanners 2 the new order well i totally agree that i like trujillo quite a bit too he just showed up in uh, riddick recently i really need to see that movie now i'm going to see that tomorrow he's aging very well I have to say, he does not look like he was born in, in 55 or whenever, but yeah, he, he was doing good. And yeah, he was very, you know, creepy and everything. And I liked, you know, the, I felt kind of bad for all the doctors that were trying to work on him because he was just running through him like crazy. It was just every single doctor that tried to inject him with stuff. It was, you know, they were, he was killing them like mad. And I was thinking they should really invest in some of those Magneto helmets for these movies, you know, just so that nobody can start affecting their brains. But Well, we, we do find out that the scanners have a limitation in the fourth film, but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, I don't know. It was all right. I mean, the, the production values seemed so low in this. I mean, it was like even the special effects, the sound effects of the guns didn't even sound right to me for some reason. They sounded like they were recorded in an echo chamber or something. I remember, I want to say that it was Scanners 2 that I saw in the theater. You know, we kind of went back and forth about this a few weeks ago as far as, you know, it is listed as a video release. But I know there were a few vid- video releases that did get limited theatrical runs. And I know for sure that either 2 or 3, and I'm pretty sure it was 2 because the timeline, going back to the timeline, the timeline matches up for when I was working at a movie theater. There were times where... Like uh, a movie would get out of frame and you could see the equipment on the ground and everything or see the boom mic and stuff. And, and you know, ha ha ha, isn't that funny to to watch and everything? It was kind of interesting with scanners, too, regardless of whether it was like once it was in frame, we could still see like like the stands for lights and everything. So it was just like totally not framed the right way or at least they told us like the wrong aspect ratio i was gonna say you 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 must have had an open mat print or something like that yeah it was kind of funny i mean so yeah it was uh so that was interesting because as we're watching the movie we're just like oh look at there's a light stand over there oh there's a flag on there oh yeah there's the uh there's the boom mic again so that made the screening that was the memorable part i don't remember anything else about the film Okay, well, even when you rewatched it, nothing stuck out for, to you? 
Oh, I mean, now when I watched it, it was just like, okay, yeah. I like David Hewitt, but yeah, you're right. He was totally bland in this, and they should have gotten... I don't know if it was just that he didn't have anything to work with or what it was, but it's always bad when our criminal is so much more interesting than the other guy. And yeah, it, you're right, Alex, as far as like the political aspirations and what the big plot is and everything. I mean... It really reminded me of just like a, like a Steven Seagal film. You know, what was the one like, you can take that to the bank. You know, it felt like that. The blood you know? bank. Right. It was just like nothing really spectacular as far as what they were doing with these mind readers and stuff. It was just like they were a new league of assassins. If anything, it were kind of, you know, it, it's like pointed out some of the faults of other films that use the same kind of you know, we're going to create an army of super soldier kind of things. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Iron Man 3 as I was watching it. Lack of villain vision? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just kind of uh, small scope, you know, hey, yeah, I'm going to take over. I'm going to take over all of Toronto with this group. Well, and then with this film, you started to see what would become the series biggest problem in the public perception. And that would be you had one exploding head scene in the first film, which I really credit Cronenberg for putting it within the first 12 minutes, too. You get your big effect shot out of the way right away, you've grabbed the audience. I thought that was a very wise move on Cronenberg's part. And I think that they realized, like you pointed out, Mike, Terror in the Isles and that, everyone remembered the exploding head. So they said, okay, we had one exploding head in in the first film. This film's got, what, three or four? exploding heads that scanners unfortunately became the exploding head series i think that became its trademark and that shouldn't have because there were so many so much better things in these movies than just we can make people's heads explode am i the only one that picked up on the weird sexual innuendos in multiple scenes in this such as where drac encounters david hewitt in an alley and he's shining a light on him and holding him down and going, I'm going to suck you dry, boy. Am I the only one that got a weird, rapey, homosexual vibe off that? No, because I saw that line as completely being homage to the first movie where Michael Ironside says the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, I definitely don't think it was all you, Josh. Okay, and then it got even worse when we get to Julie Vale, his older sister, Scanner. And she's teaching him how to scan people, and she's saying, push into my mind. And then she's going, oh, be more gentle. And I'm going, you do realize you're brother and sister, right? And this has got a overtly sexual tone to it? Again, am I the only one that picked up on that? Uh, it was very George Lucas. I did catch the twin cest. This, this part I thought was just bad storytelling, or she really loved him. When David Hewitt tells his girlfriend that he's a scanner and can read minds, she's just like, oh, cool. She wasn't shocked or anything. I was just like, you're awful accepting, lady. But after the sister came into the movie, she was basically a non-entity anyway. Oh, yeah. Exactly. For timeline purposes, the ending of the movie, scanners get revealed to the world. That uh, during a live newscast, scanners, the world now knows that scanners exist. But you get the implication that they're still relatively rare because our aspirations to be a mayor, he was kind of collecting them. And there were, I don't even know how many dead at this point from being addicted to F2. And then they all drained Drock and all that. This is important again for later. 
I always assumed that there were exactly as many scanners as there were thalidomide children, since the drug basically had the same backstory. Oh, yeah, it was a very thin allegory there. Let's put it that way. I will say one more thing is I was reminded a lot of the ending of The Howling while I was watching that as far as the revelation of the werewolf at the end of The Howling and then the kind of non-revelation as we went forward into the next one. Well, and even the reporters that were in the room were just like, oh, scanners, neat. We come in peace. We mean you no harm. You would think a reporter would be a little more shocked and want to dig deeper, but it was just like, oh, hey, they can read minds. Neat. I remember that story from 20-odd years ago. In Canada? Yeah. Because this one do- definitely does not take place in Canada because you see an American flag multiple times. They don't. They, they still don't tell us what city, but we're in Merca this time. Well, yeah, we're, we're in America by way of Canada, definitely. Yeah, cause... all five movies were shot in Canada. But yeah. Then we move on to Scanners 3, The Takeover. Or for our foreign listeners, Scanner Force. For whatever reason, you guys got it under the title Scanner Force. Don't ask me. Or anyone that looks up this movie on IMDb, because that's how it's listed there. Yeah, instead of Scanners 3, the takeover, it's Scanner Force for some idiotic reason. And now in this one, it has to be following the continuity of the second film. Because in this one, the drug they're using is F3, going from F2 in the last film. And scanners are sort of an open secret. People know they exist, but your odds of running into one are still relatively low. So again, we're going off the continuity of the second film. And supposedly 2 and 3 were shot back to back. I don't buy that for a second because they look so radically different. And Scanners 3 looks way more low budget. In Scanners 3, they outright say it's now the 1990s. So we have our first major timeline discrepancy. So not only have we lost a good decade to 15 years in time... But to me, it's implied that the second generation of scanners that Revoc was trying to create by giving ephemeral to pregnant women in the first film, that which was 1980, how are they in their late 20s when they're in the 1990? Do you guys see why the, the timeline's going to make my head explode? Yeah, you get caught up on that kind of stuff. I imagine that they just wanted to set this in the 90s so they didn't have to make... Anything seem futuristic, so it'd be a little bit easier on production costs. Probably. But in this one, they basically, in quotes, perfected F3. So scanners, because scanners tend to go crazy when they're not on ephemeral because of the fact that they're just getting all the feedback from everything around them. And F2 was addictive, so you didn't want to do that. F3, it completely controls a scanner. They can still use their powers, but they can... Block out what they don't want. One minor little... Really, it's only a footnote side effect. It causes you to lose your entire moral center and you no longer have a sense of right and wrong. I mean, come on, what's wrong with that? Right, Alex? It's what made for, like, one of my favorite villains. And see, I hated this movie. I thought Scanners 3 is the worst of the entire franchise. You know, I didn't mind this movie either. I thought that it was... It was goofier than the other films as far as like, you know, it starts off at this party and they're like, oh, yeah, scanners aren't real. And it's like, oh, you want to see the, a real scanner? Hey, man, I'll have my friend show off for you. And unfortunately, the friend uh, who ends up being our main character gets distracted and pushes his buddy out the window. Whoops. Um, 
but yeah, it, so there's that. And then what? He runs away to Thailand, and there's this whole thing where he's like fighting these Thai boxers. And I love the fact that there's no, crim- there's no criminal investigation about the death either. No. No, no, there's not, a, there's one throw there's a throwaway line he has in voiceover of they found me not guilty but I felt guilty yeah and I I just and again ultra bland milk toast hero totally over the top villain are you noticing a pattern in the scanners movies here guys yeah and this the scanners franchise really relies a lot on eye acting it's that whole like James McAvoy is professor x kind of thing at least they don't have to hold their fingers up to their temple when they're doing their thing but it's a lot of moving your eyebrows very much and 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 looking very forceful and very intense very intense and then you get the great sound effect as well and that definitely shows that you are using your mind powers so i swear these scanners films have to be some of the cheapest films to do just because other than the exploding head stuff and maybe you know some fire and some veins bulging kind of stuff that's it you know there's no ray guns or anything it's all just you know a noise and an intense look from the people as they try to mind battle each other you know like i said i didn't really mind it that much i just uh i thought that the main villainess was uh kind of hot so i i didn't mind uh watching her as she went through and yeah, she didn't have a moral center, so I, I thought that was pretty cool that she was just uh, doing whatever she felt like doing. I thought Scanners 3 was a pretty fun B-movie, especially because of the villainess. The, what was her name? Helen was the character's name. Because, first of all, she has no character arc. She's really nice at the beginning, and then once the second she puts that patch on, she's killing a pigeon and then just knocking the guts aside to eat her breakfast. And see, that was part of my problem with the character. It was like somebody just flipped a switch and all of a sudden your moral center is gone. Yeah, I would, I would have, is... But it would have been a character building and it, they could have given her an arc of her slowly losing her moral center instead of just five minutes after the patch. Yeah, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to kill whoever I want. And she was so over the top. Like that scene where she's towards the end where she's doing that football game. And she makes some guy's head explode, and she goes, oh, well, it's a violent sport. That was actually a pretty cool effect with the, the head rolling in the in the helmet after it explodes. That was actually pretty cool. And that because in this one, at least we have a villain that wants to be more than mayor. Basically, our villainess has decided that because she's an ultra-powerful scanner and she has no moral center, if she's broadcast on TV, by the way, I would have loved to have seen the thought process in continuity of how they thought this would work. Well, while she's being broadcast live during the Super Bowl, she's going to scan everyone on the planet and make them her slaves. At least she had a goal, right? Yeah, there is always that weird kind of thing. They started with the first film where it was like, oh, well, the brain's just a machine, so why can't you infiltrate the machine? And that just, it felt like a little, it was a little shady in the it first was, one. It was a little little MacGuffin-ish. Yeah, and then as it went forward, it was just like, oh, yeah, these guys, they can control anything. It's just like, you know, oh, my, my uh, alarm clock's going off. And then it stops. But So, yeah, I can see they just kind of followed it to the logical next place as far as her, you know, trying to take over the whole world by being on TV, I suppose. And honestly, she felt like a James Bond villain that's taking over the world for no other reason than, hey, I can take over the just world. Just cause, right? 
Yeah, she was. She felt like a James Bond villain to me. Yeah, again, she reminded me of Magneto. You know, just kind of. You know, I guess James Bond for you, kind of comic booky for me. And see, the the thing I was really afraid of when I went into the next film was the ending of this, and I mean the very very ending. They set up such a terrible, idiotic plot twist. I was actually angry at my TV when I was rewatching this. At the very end, she once she gets her moral center back and she loses the F3 patch, she commits suicide. And then her consciousness goes up the wires and into the TV camera, Horace Pinker style, and there's like this evil <laughs> in the monitor, and I'm going, oh, God, no. The whole ghost in the machine thing there. I was thinking lawnmower man myself. But you guys got to agree with me. That would have been godly stupid for them to have kept in continuity, huh? Mike? Yeah, I mean, d- dumber things have happened. <laughs> if they kept it in continuity where they went with it next, it could have been stupid. It could have been good. But I they just, didn't, they I didn't was offended run with at it. That. So. I was offended with that ending. That, that ending pissed me off like you wouldn't believe. And then with these two films being shot back to back and being released almost simultaneously i think these things both only came out two months apart for scanners two and three the franchise went into hibernation for a while and then somehow pierre david convinced some investor this time at republic pictures to pick the franchise up and he took over as director this time with what i think is the strongest of all the sequels or should i even call it a sequel scanner cop they stopped numbering them at this point which is probably wise because we all know sequelitis can get to people once you're over the number three, people tend to stop paying attention. So I think it was wise that they went with a spin-off series rather than a sequel sequel. Scanner Cop was a really damn good movie. I totally loved Scanner Cop. I really did like that one. Um, I looked at it as this should have been Scanners 2, that it was a rebooted sequel. Scanners Cop was, I, I oh, Scanner Cop. I really did enjoy that one. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I like that it was this kind of the whole idea of fatherhood and relationships and, um, you know, just trying to make amends and be a better person than your own father and really what does it mean to be a father and everything. I thought that was uh, it was a nice moral center since we're using that term tonight, moral center to the film that really had been kind of missing before. And with this one, at least you start to get pretty decent protagonist. And the only time we'll have the same protagonist in two consecutive movies, too. But this one, actually, I don't know if it retcons two and three, but scanners are now not an open secret anymore. Now they're completely secretive and no one knows about them. And we're back into contemporary 1994 when the movie was made. So I think it knocked two and three out of continuity. Well, aren't they back to using ephemeral in these as well? Yeah, Yeah, they're they're just calling it ephemeral. They're not calling it F3 or anything. That's why I I think Alex was right by saying Scanner Cop was more of a reboot than an actual sequel. Yeah, which is interesting that it's 1994 when this is happening. And really, we don't think about reboots happening too much in the 90s. It's definitely more of a, a late a late early part of the 21st century kind of a thing as far as you know rebooting something especially rebooting it so quickly you know with the scanners three being what like two years beforehand 
and the fact that it still doesn't link up with co- the continuity of the first film, because since that it took place in 80, this is only 14 years later. So how is Stasiak a rookie cop when even if he was a Gen 2, he would have to be at least 18, 20 years old oh, no, that to be where he is? Complete sense, because this doesn't reference the actual characters. These Characters in Scanner Cobb have nothing to do with the characters from Scanner. No, but the next film, which also has Stasiak, does specifically reference the first film. It references that it happened, that these people existed, but these are totally different Scanners, and it establishes pretty well that there were a lot of people that took ephemeral, and there were a lot of people that had Scanner babies. So basically what happens this time, Stasiak's not the name he starts off with, but or we see a little boy whose dad is completely freaking out because they're all out of ephemeral, and his dad starts seeing little faces growing out of his head. Some cops show up. He kills one of the cops. He's about to kill the other, and then our hero as a little boy ends up killing his dad to save this innocent cop who then adopts him, and then we jump to however many years later. Stasiak is on ephemeral, so nobody knows he's a scanner except his dad, who's now the chief, and he is a rookie cop who's just starting on the beat, while Richard Lynch, always fun with Richard Lynch, is going around making ordinary people freak out and start killing police officers for apparently no reason. Did I leave anything out, Mike? No, I don't think so. Um, I was reminded a lot with this one, uh, it kind of reminded me of like Telephone, you know, this kind of like sleeper agent kind of thing with uh, Richard Lynch kind of activating these people in society. And then, well, and then eventually he has to use his scanner powers and stop taking ephemeral, which I really, this was something I'd like. This film had characters in it. You saw him starting to lose his mind more the longer he was off the ephemeral because he needed to keep his scanner powers active for this investigation. Unlike two and three, you actually gave a crap about his arc, didn't you? Yeah, and that his dad is, you know, like, I know, son, this is difficult, but we really need you and all this kind of stuff. You totally did not get that. I mean, the characters in the first couple, in in two and three, were just these kind of, I don't know, they were like walking, uh, I don't know, cardboard cutouts or something. Whereas with this, you actually get, like, relationships amongst people. I mean, like, the relationship that this guy had with his father was so much more fleshed out in the brief time that it's on screen than the whole brother-sister thing in in uh, part two and, and any kind of family thing that they had in part three. So, yeah, it was much better written. Yeah, I do like his character arc. And like Mike said, you have the, he doesn't want to do it, and the dad's like, but we need it. And then after they get enough, the son just gets passionate about it. The dad's like, no, 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 take your ephemeral. I need you to be good. And he's like, no, I have to solve the case. So you had a lot of that, like, dedicated cop. And one thing that I liked is there there were no corrupt cops at all in this movie. No, all the cops were good guys. Richard Lynch and his weird little kind of Janine Garofalo wannabe sidekick, they were the only villain villains. Your char- The characters in the movie fit very good, good-bad archetype, which made it much easier to enjoy the whole flow of the movie without any other shades of human nature to create deeper thought. It made it a very emotional, uh, not emotional, just enjoyable movie. But there was the one part that I, I loved the most where, where Stasiak is scanning the victim who, who was forced to go trigger and kill her husband, her police officer husband, and he's hurting her. He might kill her, but he's almost at the point in her brain where he can see Richard Lynch. 
and he's pissed that they pulled him off that that he's like i was almost there and you kind of got this that he is starting to lose his moral center too a little bit by not being on ephemeral i really liked that moment no it really it did help the character and again we we sympathize with this guy we empathize with what he's going through and yeah i like that they gave these scanners a, a purpose in this rather than just being like random dudes on the street or you know pawns in a uh a mad mayor kind of uh, uh, plot, putting him in an investigator role, I think really helped out. So then you get to play a little bit with the cop tropes, as well as these kind of, you know, mind reader sci-fi type tropes. So it definitely, it, it was a step in the right direction. And then we had a weird divergence in this movie that I also thought was kind of ballsy. As as the the assistant character to Richard Lynch gets hit by an ambulance. Stasiak needs to know where Richard Lynch's headquarters is. So he goes into her mind as she's dying and we go all the cell and it becomes a mind movie for the next five minutes. It was kind of ballsy. I thought, yeah, I really liked that. And I thought she was kind of cute to me. I don't know if you guys thought so. She didn't do anything for me, but you know, that's just not my kind of girl. So, I really like the guy that was playing the scanner cop. That, that, that's I my... know that. I mean, I mean the the weird cell kind of going into the mind of a dying person kind of thing. I did like that that line of fact that she goes, "Oh well, you scanned me when I was on my way to hell, so now I can take over your body while you go to hell in my place." I thought, yeah, that that was a really interesting aspect. And then we find out why Stasiak can't scan Richard Lynch because earlier in continuity. Richard Lynch got shot in the head years earlier and has a metal plate in his head. The metal plate stops scanning. So we, we find out that the scanners, Mike, as you were alluding to, there are limitations. Which I love. I love when he's like tapping on his metal plate, just like, mm-mm. <laughs> you ain't scanning me, boy. I, I, I thought that was a nice... This film was actually quite well thought out, and I thought pretty well directed. So I thought, okay, maybe Pierre David... He learned from the mistakes producing two and three, and he's starting to steer this franchise back where it needs to go. I watched it twice this week. That's how much I liked it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it was definitely, like I said, it was a step in the right direction, which made Scanner Cop 2 even more painful. Or 3, for in my case, since I hated 3 more. I hated Scanner Cop 2, so let's get to that one. And then next we come to arguably the most confused film in the franchise, and I don't mean that just for the film itself. This film was originally meant to be released as Scanner Cop 2. All the early trade ads, and you can find in old Fangoria's and Starlog's the advertising as Scanner Cop 2. Then when it was released, it was just called Scanner's The Showdown. And then when it came out in foreign territories, like the Brits and some other parts of Europe got it as Scanner Cop 2, The Showdown. So this one's all over the place, title-wise. But it is a direct sequel, kinda, to Scanner Cop. But this one is, it's inferior, to put it bluntly. Basically, it came out only a year later and was shot almost back-to-back with Scanner Cop, but they decided to 90s-fy Stasiak. Now, instead of just being a cop, he's got long hair, a leather jacket, and he's a rogue cop that plays by his own rules and can't solve the case until he's suspended. Oh, God. This movie felt like it was a parody of the Scanners films to me. Just like 
that noise that gets made when they scan somebody, we should probably talk about the villain, Patrick Kilpatrick as Carl Vulcan. He is in the movie constantly to me, and he can't go for like more than a minute without scanning someone and making them do his bidding. And it gets to the point of just absolute ridiculousness, where it's just like, hey, dude, what are you doing here? Scan, oh, yes, this, sir. Yes, come this way. Let me help you out. Oh, can I take your bags? And it's just bizarre. I mean, I was laughing through 90% of the film just because it got to the point where it's just absolutely ridiculous. And it was probably, it got to that point within <laughs> the first 15 minutes. This is also the goriest of all the movies, too. Yeah. A lot of people melt in this movie. Oh, Bas- yeah. Basically, what happens is Patrick Kilpatrick, he's already insane because he didn't start taking ephemeral until his mind was gone. He's an incredibly powerful scanner to begin with. And so he stops taking his ephemeral, escapes from prison, and then decides he's the Highlander somehow. And he can suck the energy quickening style out of other scanners to make himself more powerful. But he has got a linked continuity with Stasiak. We're going to go back to the timeline here. Even though this film came out only a year later, it has to take place a minimum of four to five years after Scanner Cop because Stasiak says, when I first became a detective, I ran into the Volker character. And he says, four years ago, this happened. He wasn't even a detective yet in Scanner Cop, so we're jumping all over in the timeline here. And then Volker, Stasiak killed his brother or something, so he wants revenge, so he's killing all these innocent scanners to get their power so he can kill Stasiak, and then he hunts down Stasiak's mom, and scanners are now an open secret again to the point of there's a scanner medical center that they can go to where they can get ephemeral if they can't afford it, and yeah... This film kind of is all over the place. Alex, I know you hated it. Go. All right. So Patrick Kilpatrick's character is terrible. He has the exact same motivation that Richard Lynch did, which was, you arrested me once, so I'm out to get you now. He has that horrible line in the flashback that I'm going to kill you bad. I hate that line made me that crack up. That line made up. me smile, man. It made me crack up, but it is such a terrible line. I'm going to kill you bad. And, like, you have the the thing at him at the scanner hospital where he's just walking around making da-da-da-da noises the whole time. Stasiak, every line out of his mouth is cliched 90s cop one-liner. You've also got Robert Forster looking like he does not want to be in this movie either as the ca- as the put-upon captain. He He just looks like, wasn't I an alligator once? Jesus Christ. Yeah, where's Quentin Tarantino when I need him? This is still two years before Tarantino would resurrect his career. <laughs> yeah, and he was definitely feeling the pain with this one. Yeah, he was like totally that hangdog captain. I mean, everything about this film just felt so cliched, even though it's a movie about a cop and a killer that can read minds. But it still felt just like it was playing with the stuff that we had seen in Scanners and employing every cliche that we've seen in cop movies before i'm surprised that he didn't have to give up his gun and his badge the whole opening where he's trying to rescue that hostage situation i'm like this is every diehard movie I'm oh yeah he and th- show th- up th- on a motorcycle robert forster even has a line of dialogue if stasiak can't do it no one can yeah you just kind of oh god but see I'll, I'll argue with this 
Alex, I liked Patrick Kilpatrick in this because he seemed like he had no fucks left to give. He seemed like like his character really didn't care and that he had no moral center and that it was all I got the vibe off him that if I didn't know Patrick Kilpatrick from interviews and that was a nice guy, I would have thought he wasn't acting. He looked like he was gone. Yeah, I like I said, he just he was a cartoon character. It was just you know, I I really started to question if this was supposed to be funny or not as I was watching it. I was reminded a lot in this one of Heroes, the first season of Heroes and where Skylar's going around trying to get everybody's powers and stuff and just get more and more powerful as the season goes on. I, I until, got that vibe too, yeah. Yeah, until you just don't care anymore and it's like, okay, yeah, this guy's going to be really powerful, so it's going to be a big fight at the end. But yeah, they're going to, you know, and then the, it's like the the sister or whoever it is just keeps saying like, you got to trick this guy. You got to make him think that it's a, it's an illusion. Da, 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 da. And she says that at the beginning Then she says it again, right before he goes into the fight. And then while he's in the fight, then, you know, it comes back as like a flashback echo. And it was just like, Oh, for God's sakes, are you that dumb? Come on, come on, Sam. You should have remembered that. And this film is the one that dis- that distinctly tells us that the first film took place in 1980, because w- when they can't figure out what happened to the first scanners melted body that they find, they said a similar thing happened in Alberta, Canada in 1980, and they show the photo of Vale's body. So that's why it, it's the fifth film solidifies the, this f***ed up timeline. That, yes, they're using 1980 as the continuity point for the Revoc-Cameron duel. But this film, I don't know. It was so 90s to me. I had... I, I, I'm like you, Mike. I, enjo- I mean, I did enjoy it. I, I know you didn't necessarily, but... I, I kind of saw this as we're we're totally self-aware. I saw this one more as like the Friday the 13th part six of the franchise. Almost a spoof, but totally played straight. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's almost a spoof. I don't know if it's because of that. There, there were no further Scanners films. This was the last one. And they've been threatening for years to get to make a remake. And then in 2011, Sci-Fi was trying to make a TV series, which, as much as I'm against it, out of all of Cronenberg's properties, this is the one that really opens itself up the most to a TV series, doesn't it? Every week, Sam Stasiak is going to go out and solve a new crime that can only be solved by Scanner Cop. Beat that, Alex. Definitely, I agree. You know, here's the thing. Scanners went the first film actually became kind of a benchmark because first of all it's a science fiction film and it's a horror film so it got covered in both genres and i think it's the film that cronenberg is most known for i mean you've got references to scanners in movies like tommy boy you've got references in national lampoon films you've got references in cartoon network cartoons i think more people have seen revok blowing up that nameless's that nameless first scanner's head in the first film more than people have actually seen the first film. I'll put it this way. When I needed that clip for something, it was not hard to find. <laughs> no, it, no, it wasn't. Not at all. And it's actually kind of funny. Cronenberg actually makes fun of this himself. Not the HBO series, The Newsroom, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a Canadian TV series called The Newsroom that was a sitcom. And they had one episode where David Cronenberg played himself. He was in studio to talk about, you know, Canadian film credits or something like that. 
all anyone ever wanted to do was ask him questions about scanners and Videodrome, and he finally just exploded at them that, I've made more goddamn movies than that! And everyone's like, oh, we're sorry. And I, I, I thought that was a really nice, playful way of him acknowledging, you know what, I might only be known for a couple of films, but I've done more! Ask me about Jeff Goldblum and The Fly! You would think The Fly would be, because that was much more mainstream and wide release, but Scanners, like I said, when you see Scanners references on episodes of Recess on Nickelodeon, you start to just go, have they actually seen Scanners, or do they just know people's heads explode in that? Yeah, that's probably what it is. It's good shorthand. Having seen the entire franchise now, Alex, what are your thoughts on Scanners as a franchise? Do you recommend it as a franchise? You can't just say for a specific film. As a franchise, do you recommend Scanners? I don't think it should have been a franchise. I mean, it was a great first movie, but even the best of the sequels, Scanner Cop, doesn't match what Cronenberg had with that first movie. It didn't need a sequel, but, you know, they kept going with it anyway, as they do with anything. As a franchise, I don't like it. As one good movie, it's great. You could have renamed Skinner Cop to be something else. I mean, it really isn't tied into the first movie. Not like how they did with the second movie, where it's like, oh, remember 1980 when when this happened? I, yeah, I, I Skinner Cop should exist in some universe, but... Yeah, the the franchise itself, Scanners should have just ended after Scanners. Well, and then why do you think that this that this franchise after the first film is so relatively unknown yet clearly was popular enough to spawn four sequels? I have one word for you. Canadian. I'm going to need you to expand on that. I think that so much of Canadian culture and I do include Scanners and Skinner Cop and all that as Canadian culture, and I know that somebody's head just exploded hearing me say that, but I think that that's part of their stuff, and sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate down below the, the, the lakes and the rivers, as it were. So I think that if we were talking to some Canadian people, they might know it better. It's kind of like people not realizing that there are more than one Ginger Snaps movies, because it's just this kind of Canadian thing that happens and the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have to know about it. I think there was a audience for them, be it a Canadian audience or maybe a cult audience for them. I mean, they obviously watched them because they kept making them. And you pointed out some time ago on Facebook how Scanners 2 was just everywhere on video. Every video store you went to had Scanners 2. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think Scanners 2, The New Order, is the most replicated VHS tape ever. I have never gone to a Goodwill or a St. Vincent de Paul or a Salvation Army to look for VHS tapes, and there's not one copy of Scanners 2 on the shelf. Everybody seemed to have owned this movie, yet no one seems to have watched it. Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm trying to remember if it was uh, uh, Adjust Your Tracking or Wind This that had the guy where it was like every place he went, he would find Titanic, the two-tape two set. And it was just like, yep, yeah, it's pretty ubiquitous, just everywhere you go. And yeah, that was it was a pretty, it was definitely a staple when I was working at Blockbuster Video. You know, we had the Scanners movies there, but they had a lot of dust on the shelves. So my final thoughts on the Scanners series the sequels were a mistake at first, but then I agree, Scanner Scanner Cop was definitely, definitely worth it. 
I, I'm going to go with Mike here. It didn't necessarily need to be a, a Scanners movie. It, it could have been a movie on its own. Could have been called Psycop or something. There you go. And then it would have been called a ripoff of Scanners. So I, I think the title makes it, well, it's not a ripoff then because Scanners in the title. See? So when are we going to talk about a Scanner Darkly? I watched that one too. That one's unrelated. That one's on you. Oh, really? That one's on you. Photos of these movies for your text reviews of them. Yeah, I type in scanners, and all that comes up are pictures of MRIs and CAT scan machines. And like, oh, do I really have to specify movie? I'm surprised you didn't get, like, the Hewlett Packard website. That, too. It came up with photo scanners. It's like, the movies are kind of forgotten by the internet. Which is which also makes me beg the question, why would Sci-Fi Channel want to make a TV series out of a franchise that nobody's seen and those who have barely remember? Well, maybe there's some cachet somewhere or somebody just has the right pockets. I mean, I don't know. They made a, a TV show out of uh, dumber things than that, I'm sure. <laughs> you probably know better uh, examples than I do. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. There you go. Dumb and Dumber. Oh, God. Yeah. You forgot about that one, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, that was a freaking TV series. All right, so where where can we find Mike White? You can find me over at the Projection Booth podcast over at projection-booth.com. Or better yet, go over to geekjuicemedia.com and you can see all the shows there. Where can we find Alex the Swayjowski? At geekjuicemedia.com. And you can find me at geekjuicemedia.com, 1201beyond.com, and you can reach the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.